0: I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter number 1. Matthew chapter number 1, if you're not already there. Before we re-enter our series in 1 Corinthians, which we will do, I couldn't help but spend a Lord's Day, having concluded our study in the book of Ruth, our brief study in the book of Ruth, spending a Lord's Day considering the great and ultimate aim of of that narrative. We noted that the narrative there in the book of Ruth was never just about Ruth, but it was pointing us forward to one who would come a thousand years later, born in the same city of Bethlehem, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what I want us to consider this morning. I want us to consider uh, the coming of our Lord into this world, and by way of a title... I want to preach to you on the mission statement of Christ. The mission statement of Christ. Why did he come? What did he do? What was the purpose of the incarnation? Let us consider that from Matthew. And I am going to ask you to turn a few places because there's a couple of things that I want to show you and prove to you biblically. But primarily, we're just going to be considering one verse this morning. That is Matthew 1 in verse 21. Matthew 1 in verse 21. Let me read it for you. These are the words of God. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Most all organizations, associations, clubs, companies, have some type of mission statement. This is typically a brief description or declaration of their central purpose and objective. It is why they exist. It is their identity, and it provides a framework. It provides an outline for their purpose in the world. Many of you work for companies that have a mission statement. Now, don't crucify me, and stone me with stones, but I used to work for a Christian bookstore that will not be named, and uh, it has since closed all of its brick and mortar stores, and it's come under fire for uh, just certain books that it sold, Uh, but it had a very defined mission statement, and we, at the beginning of every shift, had to recite that mission statement. To see lives transformed by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I still remember that mission statement because we said it in that mission statement. was supposed to, to guide us throughout the day and remind us of what our purpose was there. Well, I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ also has a mission statement. And it is given to us right here in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, and it's communicated in such a way that we can always have it at the forefront of our minds. When we ask the question, why did God the Father send His only begotten Son into the world? We have this mission statement to tell us why. Call His name Jesus. Here's the mission statement. For He shall save His people from their sins. Everything he has ever done, everything he will do, everything he will never do is viewed and shaped through the lens of this mission statement. This phrase consists of eight simple words in your English Bible. And it is the most clear, emphatic, and succinct proclamation of the reason for our Lord's coming into this world. This is the mission statement of Christ. There are many in our day who offer up a variety of reasons for why Christ came into the world. Some will tell you that Christ came to leave mankind with a supreme example of how to live. Some will tell you that Jesus came to deliver us from our sadness and our depression and to give us a happy life. Some will tell you that Jesus came to give moral teachings on how to be good people. Some will say that Jesus came to model equality and social justice. But all of these ideas and all of these suppositions that men have suggested, they're products of a view of our Lord that denies His own plain statement about why He came to this world. We don't have to wonder Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? We know why he came into the world. He tells us he came into the world to save his people from their sins. It may sound really cute and really sweet to say that Jesus came to teach us all how to be nice and love one another. But brothers and sisters, we had a far greater problem than just being mean to one another. We were at war with God. And God was at war with us. There was a hostility between a holy God and sinful people. And this hostility could not be reconciled apart from a Christ who came to save His people from their sins. All of the morality and all of the kindness and all of the reformation of our behavior could have never overcome the problem of our sin Therefore, God, in due time, sent His Son into the world, born of a virgin, that He might become the solution to this great problem of mankind. He came not merely to be a teacher or to be an example, but He came to be a Savior. A Savior! You may have many teachers in this life. You may have many examples of people you look to and people you say, I want to model myself after them because of their godliness. But you only have one Savior. That's right. Now, any good mission statement needs a direct object, a subject, and a predicate. It needs those three things. You need to have the one that's going to be doing the mission statement, you need to have the verb that tells us what the mission statement is, and then you need to have the direct object, the recipient. So the the example I gave you, to see lives transformed, well, we were the ones that wanted to see the lives transformed. The transforming of lives was what we wanted to see. That was the verb in that mission statement. And then People to see lives transformed. The the lives of those people, they were the direct objects. They were the recipient of our mission statement. Every mission statement needs those three things, and we see that here. Who is the subject of this mission statement? Who is the, the doer of this mission statement? Call his name Jesus. And who is the direct object? Who's the recipient? His people. And what's He going to do for them? What's the verb? He's going to save them. The mission statement of Christ tells us that the incarnation was a divine rescue mission. This word, save. If you lose this word, you lose the gospel. If you lose this word, you have no good news. If you lose this word, you have a social club. You have a, a group of people that love a Jesus that they know nothing about because they've made him into just some idol of their own imagination. The message of Christ is the message of salvation. And that's what Christ is still doing today is he's saving his people from their sins. Now for some of you, he's already begun that work within you. He's saved you, he's justified you, he has delivered you and redeemed you, but he's still saving you from the power of sin, from the, the, the indwelling sin, the temptation of sin, he's saving you from that, and there's coming a day in which he will save you from the very presence of sin. God is still in the business of saving sinners. I believe that with all of my heart. And for some of us, it's been a very long time since we've seen that. And we go through these dry spells and we think, is the gospel still efficacious? Is the gospel still powerful to save? And I want you to see that it is, brothers and sisters. It's still what God uses to save His people. And those of you who are here, who are burdened because of lost loved ones, who are burdened because of friends and family members, who are burdened because of the state of our society... I want you to say that, to, to understand that there's only one message there's only one way of salvation and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ Amen. that he shall save his people from their sins. So let's unpack this mission statement. We're preaching this on the heels of the book of Ruth and when we were doing our scripture reading this morning Maybe the genealogy, at least a section of it, should have sounded very familiar. That's all part of this divine rescue plan, sending the Messiah into the world. And so what we've basically done is we've studied the book of Ruth the last four weeks, and now we've hit the fast-forward button and we've gone forward a thousand years to the coming of this chosen servant of God who will be born of the Virgin Mary. We're going to unpack his mission statement into the world. I want you to see five things from this mission statement. The first is this. I want you to see. We know that the mission statement is salvation. So we're going to use that as our basis and then unpack it from there. The first thing I want you to see is the person of salvation. The person of salvation. In order for salvation to occur, there must of necessity be a Savior. The problem with many false converts is they don't know who the Savior is. They think the Savior is themselves and their own good works. You say, brother, isn't that a little harsh? Well, just ask them. Just say, "Um, are you saved? (laughs) Yes, I am. Well, why? What makes you think that? And then they will begin to rattle off a list of things they have done. Well, I prayed this prayer, or I got baptized, or I joined the church, or I did this. There's no I in Matthew 121. That's right. Oh, but there is a he. Mm-hmm. There is a he. The gospel message is not about you, I, or me. It's about he. What he has done. It's an obvious reference. The pronoun he is an obvious reference to the first part of the verse. Call his name Jesus. That name which is above every name. Christ is his title. Jesus is his name. Jesus was the name conferred upon the second person of the Godhead at the time of his incarnation. It is the name of his humility as this name signifies his condescension from off the throne down into this sin-cursed earth because God, we could not go to where God is because we could not take the first step in reconciling ourselves to him. God sent Jesus. Call his name Jesus. Jesus is the name of his condescension. But this name, this blessed name, teaches us that salvation is not just something he does, salvation is who he is. The name Jesus means Jehovah is our salvation, God is our salvation. Therefore, He's not only the performer of salvation, He's the very person of salvation. Salvation is not in a system of works that you perform. Salvation is in a person. Salvation is not in joining a church. Salvation is in a relationship with the Savior. No one will ever redeem sinners. Only He will save. Jesus is the name of the Savior, as the Bible declares, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. The name of Jesus is a name of exclusivity. And the world cannot accept that. The gospel is scandalous to the world. Because we live in a world where the supreme virtue is toleration and acceptance of any and everything. You're right, I'm right, we're all right, nobody's wrong. Imagine that. The Bible does not say that he is one of the many saviors, or he's a savior for you, but somebody else may be able to be saved another way, or he he saved you, but... I I can find my fulfillment elsewhere. No, brothers and sisters, we must hold fast to the exclamation of Christ's exclusivity, that He is the one and only Savior from beginning to end. There's none other. There's no one else. There's no one beside Him. No one will ever come after Him. No one ever came before Him. He's the Savior of mankind. And that's not cruel, nor is that Unloving, the most loving thing you can do is tell sinners who are trusting in something that cannot save them of the one who can. Amen. The exclusivity of Christ means that no amount of good deeds nor any other religious system will ever be enough to merit the favor of God all other religious systems teach that man has to work his way to a right relationship with God. A works-based salvation. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says that all of our acceptance with God is on the basis of another's merits. Paul had to defend the gospel against the attacks of the antinomians. When he presented the gospel, he presented it as salvation By the free, sovereign, undeserved grace of God alone. And that caused sinners to ask, well, what are you saying, Paul? Are you saying we can go on in sin because our salvation is not dependent on our works? And obviously we know the answer there was, God forbid. But I want to say this to you. If you're preaching the gospel and the, the gospel of God's grace does not come across with such declarative power that people don't, ask well what are you saying are you saying that we can just go on in in sin you might not really be preaching the gospel of grace that's a logical question to ask when we were presented with the free and overwhelming grace of the gospel and it is this gospel of grace it's the gospel of god's grace the grace that was manifested in the person and work of jesus christ that is the only hope for our salvation The religions of men may be able to change the way you act, the things you do, but only Jesus can change who you are. Only Christ, the person of redemption, by His work alone can reconcile sinners to a holy God. You will not be able to boast in any of your works or anything you've contributed or any good deed that you have ever done when you stand before God on that great day. Nothing either great or small. Nothing, sin or no. Jesus did it. Did it all long, long ago. When he from off his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done, hearken to his cry. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done long, long ago. Jesus Christ is exclusively the person of salvation. That's where we must begin with the gospel. We must begin by proclaiming him. Before we can even begin to understand how he accomplished what he did, we must drop anchor on the fact, the biblical fact, that he is alone the Savior of sinners. Secondly, we see in this mission statement the promise of salvation. Call his name Jesus. I want you to notice what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say, for he shall try to save his people. Call his name Jesus, for he will give it his best shot. Call his name Jesus, for he will begin the work of salvation, and he'll get you off to a good start, and then it's up to you to finish the job. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is the language of divine certainty. This shall is the promise of God that all he has purposed to do will be fully accomplished. Salvation was not given to us as a proposition. It was given to us as a promise. Where do we first find this promise? And by the way, let me say this. God deals with his people. He deals with mankind by way of promises. God never speaks with uncertainty. God never speaks with trivialities. You and I, we say, well, you know, I would like to do this, or I think I might do that, but God never does that. He speaks by way of promise, oath-bound promises. He speaks by way of covenant first promise that God ever gave to mankind you can find it in Genesis 2 God gave a promise to Adam in the garden and he said of all the trees you may freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall never eat for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die that was a promise that God gave to him it was not well maybe if you eat of the tree you might die no it was you shall die Just as certain as the promise of death upon disobedience is the promise of life in Jesus Christ. He shall save His people. That promise was first given to us immediately after the failure of man to live by the first promise. Immediately after... Adam fell in the garden and partook of the fruit, and God was faithful to fulfill his promise. Adam died spiritually, immediately. He died and physically. He began to die, and death passed upon all men. You died, and you are dying right now. But well, what did God do in his grace? In his grace. It had to have been his grace. Because what did Adam deserve in the moment he ate of the tree? But in God's grace, oh, in God's grace, God said, I'll make a second promise. Here's my second promise I'm going to preserve the seed of the woman. And through the seed of the woman will come a second Adam who will fulfill. And uphold the promise that the first Adam broke. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will save his people from their sins. Amen. And this promise given in Genesis 3 and verse 15 weaves all throughout the Bible like a scarlet thread. It flows right through the book of Ruth. Mm-hmm. It's that promise that, that, that dictates the narrative of the book of Ruth. And it flows all the way through King David and through King Solomon and down through the... Kingdoms of Israel and into the captivities, and it flows and it keeps going through the 400 years of darkness. God didn't forget His promise. It's, it's, in, it's in type, it's in, it's in shadow. Here's one of the mysteries to this promise How can a woman have a seed? You ever heard of a woman having a seed? I know we live in a pretty messed up generation, but even the perverts of our day haven't figured out how a woman can have a seed. only way a woman can have a seed is if she's conceived without the agent of a man. There's only one woman I know of that ever managed to accomplish that. It's the Virgin Mary who had a seed, not of human lineage, but of the Holy Ghost. She conceived and she bore a son in the fulfillment of God's promise. That he would send forth Jesus and he would save his people from their sins. The covenant, the first covenant, the first promise given to Adam was established upon the principle of if man. But the second promise is established on the basis of he shall. He shall. What a better promise! What a better covenant! The promise of salvation is sure in the purpose of Jesus Christ. And I contend to you this morning that the death of Christ was not an attempt. It was an accomplishment. Some will say that Jesus has died and now the rest is up to you. But if the rest is up to you, He didn't accomplish anything. Some people will say, well... He made your salvation possible dependent upon what you can do. But if your salvation is in any way dependent upon what you can do, He didn't accomplish anything. If that were the case, we need to change the words in our hymnal to Jesus paid some of it. Yet we sing, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. He shall save His people from their sins. This shall means that the Lamb of God would soon take away the sin of the world. This shall means that the sheep would hear the voice of their shepherd and they would follow Him. This shall means that the suffering servant would soon see the travail of His soul and He would be satisfied. This shall ensures that all that Christ came to do He would definitely accomplish with unrivaled perfection that brings us to point number 3 we see also in matthew 121 the partakers of salvation the partakers of salvation if christ accomplished something then he must have had an assignment to borrow from the late elder dj ward He must have had a particular, spelled out, defined plan that he was to follow. He couldn't have just come into the world and haphazardly went about his life hoping that maybe he would get to this fulfillment of saving his people from their sins. No, but it had to be something that was spelled out in the wisdom and the providence of God that he came to perform. We see this specificity in the partakers of salvation. The Bible tells us in Matthew one twenty one, For he shall save his people from their sins. The promise of salvation was not made to a hypothetical group. The promise of salvation was not made to no one. But it was made to his people. When Jesus executed the work of redemption, He did so on behalf of a particular people that are referred to as His. His, who are called by His name, who find their identity in Him. His people. It was a definite atonement, meaning that He definitely accomplished it. And it was a particular atonement, meaning that it was on behalf of a particular group. He saves His people. Those are the people he saves. Mm -hmm. All who are Christ's will surely be saved, and all who are not Christ's will not be saved. Mm -hmm. Salvation is exclusively in Christ, and the promise of redemption is exclusively his. And the first thing I want you to see from that is that there is no hope for you outside of Christ. Mm -hmm. If you are not one of his... You are not a partaker of his promises, of his salvation, of his blessings, of his fellowship, of his love. Well, this opens up a very important question for us. We see that there are two categories of people. And everyone who has ever lived and ever will live falls into one of these two categories. Everyone here today falls in one of these two categories. Either you are a part of the group referred to as his people or you're not. Now we need to be very careful in answering the question. Who are His people? How did they become His people? And when did they become His people? For whom has Jesus come to die and ransom from the slave market of sin? Who is to benefit from the Father's gracious gift of His only begotten Son? Certainly, all men without exception belong to Christ by virtue of his exaltation. But all men without exception are not the benefits of his death. Otherwise, all would be saved. So, who are his people? When did they become his people? And how did they become his people? There are three ways to answer this question. And in all three of these answers, there is truth but not the whole truth. In order to get the whole truth, you have to affirm all three answers. Number one, it is true to say that Christ's people become His in the moment that they exercise faith and repentance. Because all of us were born children of wrath, even as others. And you cannot claim to be one of Christ, you cannot claim to belong to Him unless there has come a day in your life in which you have bowed the knee to His Lordship and received Him as your Savior. If you are living in rebellion to Him, you have no claim upon Him. No, we are not all children of God. If we were all children of God, there would be no point in preaching the gospel. No, we don't all belong to Jesus. So it is true. I don't want to undermine that truth. It's vitally true. It's indispensably true. Because we can go too far in the other direction and kind of downplay the importance of conversion. Amen. You are not one of His unless you have repented of sin and believed upon Him. Notice I didn't say unless you've perfectly followed Him, or unless you've become sinless, no, not not at all, unless you've realized your state without Him and have received Him, if you cannot say, He is mine, and I am His, and He has died for me, then you have no assurance of saying that you belong to Him. I don't care if you're a member of a church. I don't care if you've been baptized. I don't care if you read your Bible every morning. It's worthless. Worthless rags. If you don't have that relationship with But that unfolds another question for us. If man is by nature a child of wrath, even as others, how can he break the bondage of his sin? How can he ever come to repent and believe? So secondly, we must understand that Christ's people became his when he died for them. When he died for them. That's when Christ's people became his. That's when he actually purchased it. That's when he purchased his people on the cross. With his own blood. He went to the cross. And he took upon him the sins of his people. And he paid their sin debt in full. He represented them before God. He became their substitute. And he acquired them. The Bible calls us his peculiar possession. When did he possess us? When do you possess the things that that you buy? You might drive down the road and you might see that brand new F-150. And you might dream about it being yours. But it's not yours until you go to the dealership and hand them a check. And it's not yours, by the way, if you're still making payments on it. It's the bank's. Well, Jesus didn't come to make a down payment. <laughs> Jesus came to earth with cash in hand, mm-hmm. and he went to the cross, and he paid it in full. Amen. You can dream about that truck, but until you go, with cash in hand, down to the spent, and you pay it all in full, and you count out that money, it's not yours. Jesus purchased us, he paid it in full, and he received a title. And in that title, called the Lamb's Book of Life, is the names of all of the people he purchased. Sometimes we buy things without having seen it. Y'all did that, right? Mm -hmm. Bought a house, never saw it. Mm -hmm. Paid in full, never saw it. So, when did it become yours? Was it when you... Paid it in full, or was it when you actually moved in and possessed it? Yes! Yes! You were his when he died for you on the cross, but you were also his when you repented and believed. See? You must affirm two of those things. But sadly, brothers and sisters, in the state of theology today, that's where most preachers will stop. We're not going to stop there's a third truth that we must affirm. Why did his people repent and believe? Because he died for them on the cross. But a greater question, why did he die for them? Why did he die for his people? Why not affirm universalism? That is, all are going to heaven. If he died for a particular people, then there must have been a specific assignment. Thirdly, if you are in Christ, you became his before the foundation of the world in the eternal counsel of the Trinity when God the Father chose you to be in his Son. It's the doctrine of election. And we affirm that. We affirm that because we see it in the Bible. And I'm not just going to quote the doctrine. I'm going to show you biblically. So hold your place in Matthew Chapter 1, verse 21. the first place I'm going to take you, I'm going to take you to three places. The first place I'm going to take you is Ephesians, chapter number 1. Ephesians, chapter 1. I want you to begin reading in the very first verse with me. Ephesians 1, and verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. This isn't what a systematic theology textbook says. It's what the Bible says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Pay attention to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? God the Father, every good gift that we've received has come from Him. And He's blessed us in Christ. Sometimes you will encounter Christians who will begin to ask you if you've received the second blessing. Have you received the second blessing? Evidenced by speaking in tongues? And I like to say no because I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the first blessing because the Bible says I've received all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Why did we receive that? Verse 4, according, you've been blessed by God the Father in Christ because of, according, as he hath chosen us in him. The him there is in Christ, chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That was before in the beginning. That was before the moment you repented and believed. That was before the incarnation. That was before Calvary. That was before Adam. Adam. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Why did he do that? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. When did Christ's people become his? When the Father chose them to be his. Mm -hmm. Secondly, thumb over to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Paul was commending this church. Why did they live this way? Why did they exude these good works? Verse 4, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake the gospel came the gospel came in power to the Thessalonians and that was the evidence of their election of god so i want you to understand our prerogative is preaching the gospel to any and all and every creature election is god's business mm-hmm. election is what he does mm-hmm. how do you know that How can he say, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election only because their gospel came to them in power? Because some will will argue that if you begin to affirm the doctrine of election, then you're not going to preach the gospel. Well, That's very true if the elect had a big E stamped on their forehead. If they did, I wouldn't waste any time. But they don't. And so Spurgeon says, If that were the case, he'd quit being a preacher and become a coattail lifter. He'd just look on their backs. Are they wearing a shirt that identifies them? No. How are the elect identified? Because the gospel comes to them in power. I had a professor that used to say that when we get to heaven, we will see the gate, and on the front of the gate, it will say, whosoever will, let him come. And then when we walk through the gate, we'll see on the back of it, chosen before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election does not hinder our preaching. It encourages our preaching because we know that the gospel coming in power is not dependent on our ability to be eloquent, to be persuasive, to be energetic, to be motivated. The power of the gospel is in God himself. He is the one that empowers the gospel. He is the one that saves his people from their sins. And when we evangelize, we're fishing in a stocked pond. There are sinners for whom Christ has died. They belong to Him, but He's not possessed them yet. And we go out and we preach the gospel, and the Bible says in John 10, His sheep hear His voice and they follow Him. Mm-hmm. Lastly, I want you to see 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 1. You noticed an interesting an interesting theme here in these passages, Ch- chapter 1, in the beginning of the epistle. See, the doctrine of election, some men believe it, but they will say, well, that's just some theological doctrine that we should log off and, uh, and hold off on preaching and that is just something we reserve for the seminary classrooms. That's not the way Paul viewed the doctrine of election. He included it in the opening statements of many of his epistles. And Peter here includes it in the opening statement of his epistle. Amen. First Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Do you see all three persons of the Godhead in that one verse? If you you ask me, why should I believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation? Because God is Trinitarian. Why do I believe in the doctrine of election and the doctrine of particular redemption? Because I'm a Trinitarian. And I believe that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are not working against each other. They're working together. There's harmony in the Godhead. Now, there are some brethren who just will not stand for this sort of preaching. They will not stand for the doctrine of election. They will not stand for the sovereignty of God. In fact, it actually makes them angry. Oh, but this is not something that we should be angry about. Mm. This is something we should rejoice in because this truth teaches us that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, totally unable to come to God, when we were haters of God, when we despised Him, when we shook our fists at Him, God was working out an eternal purpose to save us. Amen. Amen. Before we were ever alive, before we'd ever committed our first sin, we already had a Savior. Before you were ever born, God was already purposed to send the Lord Jesus Christ into the world, for He shall save His people from their sins. And we were His people before the foundation of the world. We were His people when He died for us on the cross. And we were His people when by the Spirit, God the Father chose, God the Son redeemed, God the Spirit grants us the gifts of faith and repentance. All three of those truths are co-equal and co-necessary. We neglect one of them, we become an Arminian. We neglect another one, we become a hyper-Calvinist. We fall into one of the ditches on both sides. We affirm all three of them. Far be it to ever think that because of the doctrine of election, you don't need to repent and believe. No, because of the doctrine of election, you must repent and believe. And if you're here today concerned about the state of your soul, let me simply say to you that you don't need to worry about what God has done and the eternal counsels of His will. You need to worry about, am I repenting of sin and believing upon Christ? Amen. That's what the Bible says to do. Yes. Commands all men to do that. Mm-hmm. But just know... That if you have repented and if you have believed, it's not because you just make better decisions than other people or you weren't as bad as other sinners or you you were smarter and you figured it out or you just so happened to come to church and hear the gospel. No, it's because God was at work in His providence to bring you to where you are and save you. And if you are concerned over the state of a lost loved one, don't concern yourself. Don't don't worry about will God is he. our warrant for preaching is not the hidden secret counsel of God in eternity. Our warrant for preaching the gospel is that Jesus said, Anyone who comes unto me, I'll save him in and in no wise cast him out. That's right. Amen. Now this is grace. This is grace. Grace apart from works. This is grace, the promise of salvation. Time is running out, but I want to get through this fourthly. I want you to see the proof of salvation. But back in Matthew, Matthew one. Notice what the Bible says. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins from their sins so many will claim to be saved so many will claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ but I want you to understand that there is a proof that comes with that it's hard to believe that someone is really saved when there's no proof Mm -hmm. you claim to be saved saved from what? You, you don't live any differently. You don't love the things you used to hate and hate the things you used to love. You have no new desires. You look just as worldly as you always have. There's no evidence that you've ever experienced salvation. Jesus saves his people from their sins. Saved from what? Saved from sins. What a blessed thought. He didn't just save me from some of my sins and leave me to deal with the others. He saved me from every single one of them. And we can say, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. He has taken away our sins as far as the east is from the west. He has purposed, He has pledged, He has promised that He will remember them no more. From the penalty on Calvary's cross, from the power of sin through continual sanctification, and from the very presence of sin in your glorification. You are safe from sins of omission, that's, that's when you don't do something you should have done and you're saved from sins of commission. That's when you do do something that you shouldn't have. You are saved from past sins. You are saved from future sins. You are saved from the sins that you have not yet committed. You are saved from the sins you can't remember. You're saved from the sins you committed as an unbeliever. You're saved from the sins you committed as a believer. You're saved from the sins you committed last night. You're saved from sins of the mind, you're saved from sins done indeed. You're saved from the guilt of original sin that you inherited from Adam. You're saved from individual acts of sin that you commit personally. You're saved from the sin of unbelief. You're saved to the uttermost. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect, Romans 8? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? Oh yes, Satan may try to remind you of what a sinner you are. Your own conscience, your own flesh may try to guilt you into remembering what a sinner you used to be. What a sinner you are by nature. But for every look you take to yourself, and for every time you dwell on your sins, you must take ten looks to Christ. You must remember that they are sins that you are saved from. Amen. And that's the very proof that you're His people. Because you're saved from your sins. You're saved from the love of your sins. You hate them now. You despise them. You don't want to commit them. When anyone comes to me and they say, I'm troubled over the state of my soul. I'm struggling with assurance of salvation. Professing believer says, I don't know if I'm really saved. Well, why is that? Well, because I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm committing sins. Okay? What's your attitude toward that? Oh, I hate it. I don't want to do it. I'm fighting against it. I just, I just can't get the victory in every area, but I hate it. I'm not too concerned. That struggle is proof that you are one of His. That He's doing a work in your heart. That He's working out a hatred for sin in your life. Sometimes the longer you go on in the Christian life, the more wicked you will say yourself to be through the process of sanctification. But I'll tell you who I am concerned with. I'm concerned of the one that claims the name of Christ but goes on living in sin. And when... They are confronted with their sins, they say, ah, Well, everybody sins. Well, I mean, Christians aren't perfect. Well, it's just a little sin. Everybody does it. That's someone who bears no proof that they've actually been saved from anything at all. But they're still under the bondage of the deceitfulness of sin. Christ saves his people from their sins. Not just from the legal penalty. You're not just saved from hell. Do you understand that? What are you saved? Well, I'm saved from a fiery hell. That's true. But what was sending you to hell? Your sins. You're saved from them. Saved from the guilt of your sin. Your conscience might convict you and lead you to repentance. But you're saved from the guilt of your sins. On Calvary's cross, as the divine gavel swung in judgment upon the guilty Messiah, simultaneously the verdict rang out to all his people. Saved, saved, saved. You want assurance of your salvation? Quit looking at your good works. Because if you start to to think, well, now that I'm a Christian, my life should be different, right? Yes, it, it should. Oh, so if I look at my life, I can see a change and I can see evidences of my salvation. Well, you might be able to do that and you should be able to do that, but not perfectly. Even as believers, you struggle with besetting sins. You want a full proof of your utter salvation? Quit looking at yourself and look to the cross. There's no doubt at Calvary. You you might be able to say, you know, sometimes I have days where I question if I even know the first lesson about the grace of God. But when I look to the cross, I see no questions. I see no doubts. I see a Savior that fully accomplished everything he ever set out to do, and he saved his people from their sins. Amen. Amen. And know this in your struggle, brother and sister. He loves you so much that he won't allow you to forever remain in those sins that he's died to save you from. Your struggle with sin is momentary. You're fighting a battle that has already been won by your Savior. And you'll experience victory in this life. But you'll experience a full victory on that great day. When you drop this robe of flesh, and you are transformed, and you're made like unto Him, and sin will be forever defeated, forever defeated. That is proof of salvation. And fifthly, and lastly, I want you to see the perfection of salvation. You say, "Well, where's that in the text? I don't see any other words left." Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Well, forgive me, but I I want to be so expositional that we preach the period this morning. I know there's no punctuation in Hebrew and Greek. I understand that. But in your English Bible, there's a period at the end of verse 21. And there should be. Because verse 21 concludes a completed thought. Here's the false gospel that deceives so many today. Call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And if you do this, then... No. Call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And if you join the church... No. Call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And if you get baptized... Call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Period. End of thought. End of statement. Add nothing he shall save his people from their sins period Amen. he's not looking for your good works to accomplish that he's not looking for your family history or money or or anything. He has saved you forever put a period in bold black ink. your salvation shall never come into question in the eternal counsel of God, it is as sure and secure as God himself. And truly, brothers and sisters, what good would it do for you to have a full salvation that saves you from all of your sins, past, present, and future, if that could ever be rescinded? Do you no good. If you don't believe in the eternal security of the believer in in the perseverance of the saints, then you don't believe in salvation at all. Because if you can lose it, you never really had it to begin with. Amen. But you can't because it wasn't something you did. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. So we can rejoice and we can rest and we can glory in our Redeemer. We need to hear preaching on practical matters and we need to hear preaching on on issues and sins, and we need to be rebuked from time to time, but you know what the greatest motivation to live the Christian life is? It's being reminded of what He's done for us. Oh, you better be careful preaching the forgiveness of sins, because if you do that, you're, you, know, you might get the idea that your sins aren't really that bad, and you don't... <laughs> Paul answers that in Romans 6.3, God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin, live any longer therein. He saved you from your sins. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. And the red, hot, high-octane, sovereign grace of God that gives us the the gospel message of Jesus Christ, it doesn't take away from the responsibility of man. It exalts and exalts amplifies the responsibility of man, because here is what this gospel teaches you. It teaches you this. There is absolutely nothing left to be done for your salvation. Jesus Christ has fully accomplished the salvation of all those who come to him in repentance and faith. The only reason why you could give for your condemnation is that you refuse to repent and believe. You refuse to cast yourself at the feet of the Savior. You can't say, well, I'm not saved because I, I I didn't do enough good works to earn it. Or, He's done it all. Uh, well, I, I didn't read the Bible enough and I haven't really gone to church very much. But he's done it all. He's not looking for your good works. Cast yourself at him. Come to an end of yourself. And let me tell you about a Savior that came. His name is called Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. And the perfection of salvation is also seen in this. As we look at this mission statement of Christ. see Here's the the difference between Christ's mission statement and all other mission statements. The mission statement of, of a company, of a secular business, it exists because the company's not actually accomplished that. You understand what I'm saying? Why do we say the mission statement? Because it's what we're trying to do. It's what we want to accomplish. And we exist because we haven't yet accomplished it. Christ has accomplished his mission statement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He has saved his people from their sins. It's a full atonement, full atonement, full salvation, nothing for you to add, nothing for you to provide. Simply trust in him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us, for the great privilege to boast in the completed and finished work of Christ. We exalt him today. We preach him without compromise. We don't apologize for him and his words. Lord, give us humble hearts. Oh, these are truths that are neglected in our day. But don't let us feel any source of pride for having received them. For We know that we receive these things because you have opened our eyes. And may these truths... And the message of your salvation encourage us and prompt us to be more evangelistically minded, to preach the gospel so that your people will hear your voice and follow you. Father, we love you. We praise you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.